Hey, if you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and uh, we're just honored that you're here this morning. There's a lot of places you could be, a lot of things that you could be doing. Uh, some of you are probably even thinking about those things a little bit this morning. Uh, but to take some time to pause, bring your attention and focus to Jesus uh, means a lot to us, but I think it'll mean a lot to you as well um, as we study His Word. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it. You can get ready. We're going to really camp out in Luke, the seventh chapter. So Luke chapter 7 this morning. Is where we're going to spend most of our time, but we are on a series in 1 Corinthians 13, um, and so we're grabbing a word that Paul gives us each week um, in an effort to point us toward certain character traits that the Holy Spirit should be developing within us um, to help us with relationships that get messy, which is just about every relationship we find ourselves in in this life, and so we grab that word and we look at what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, but a couple things I want to bring to your attention before we jump into the message today, so as you're turning there. Uh, in your uh, bulletin, there's a, a couple things for you to take note of, Some save the dates, if you will. Uh, first is, next week, after our third service, we're having a congregational meeting, and we'd really love for you to be there. If you're a member of our church, we really want to encourage you to come as we discuss some of the financial elements of the, the second year of our REACH initiative, uh, which is the initiative that uh, includes a lot of different uh, pieces, but we want to bring that to your attention. So make note, next Sunday morning after third service, uh, the next thing um, is uh, on the back of your bulletin, that's our Easter services. And so perfect time for you to invite a friend. We're going to be presenting the gospel. We're going to be, uh, it's going to be a really fun morning here at New Hope. And so it's a really great time for you to invite somebody to come check out the church. Uh, maybe that neighbor or that coworker you've been working on. This is an, a perfect opportunity to invite them. So all the information's there. It's also on our website. And the third thing, I know there's a lot, it's not in your bulletin. Uh, but on April the 9th, Sunday evening, we are going to have a special evening uh, that we're just simply calling a hymn sing and leadership community. And what that means is we're going to come together, and anybody who loves singing uh, hymns of the faith, we're going to have an evening where we just come in and uh, we, we have some piano-led hymns, and we just sing together as a church, uh, followed by some refreshments out here in our new lobby area. And our elders are going to come together and begin communicating some things. On a regular basis, we'll have these leadership communities. Um, and so make plans, April the 9th, 6 p.m., I believe. I think I'm right. I'm right, and I got the head nod, so we're good. 6 p.m., uh, April the 9th. So go ahead and make plans for that as well. If you have questions, contact the church office. A lot of announcements this morning, I know. So let's pray and just focus on Jesus and, and study God's Word together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be here. God, I'm just uh, grateful for your Word, that we have access to it with such ease and freedom. So we're going to open it this morning. And I have full expectation. I've been praying uh, for a long time for this message, and I pray, Father, that you would speak clearly to our hearts as we seek you today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On Sunday evenings, uh, I'm preaching to our student ministry. And many of you know we've hired a student minister, but he's currently serving as a missionary in Haiti. And so on Sunday evenings for our high school students, I'm doing the teaching. And so if you have a high school student, I'd encourage you to get them there because there's some incredible adult leaders. It's a wonderful evening. We do teaching with a Q&A. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but I'm preaching through the book of James for our student ministry on Sunday evenings. And in preaching through James, I've been reading it as a full letter, and I keep coming to this passage uh, in James chapter 4 uh, that reads this. I'll put it on the screens for you. Uh, verses 1 through 3 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? We talk about messy relationships, this series that we're in. What, what creates messy relationships among you? Uh, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, and so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you have or spend what you get on your own pleasures. 
You see, this idea that James is communicating here is so perfect for this sermon series that we're in. Uh, That word that he uses to communicate desires could be translated frustrated desires. It's that war that takes place within you when you have this idea of what you want, you know what you want, uh, or you know what you think you need, and it doesn't work out the way you think it should. And so uh, you get frustrated within you, and you go to war within yourself. It's this battle that takes place inside each of us. Uh, inside of our hearts. And it really spills out into our relationships. I think somebody should respond a certain way and they don't. I think I should uh, get something from somebody and they don't give it to me. I think I shouldn't be treated a certain way by someone, but they treat me that way. And so my frustration grows within me and I have a battle taking place. And the question when this battle takes place in your heart that you have to answer is who's going to submit to whom? I mean, are you going to submit to your desires, these frustrated desires within you, or are you going to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit that's alive in your life? Is anybody, maybe I'm alone here, has anybody ever had some frustrated desires within relationships that you're in? Yeah, some of you, yeah, you can put it up proud. We're together in this, all right? I've had a lot of frustrated desires when I think things should go a certain way and they don't, specifically when I'm driving. Uh, it happens all the time. You know, when you're, you see your exit coming and you Try to speed up a little bit just so the car to the right of you speeds up with you. And all of a sudden, you're on the interstate, you're racing to see, can I get in front of them to get to my exit? They don't want me to make it to my exit. I've got the blinker on, I'm letting them know, and they won't let me. And in that moment, there's this desire that takes place in my heart. It's a frustrated desire. What I want to do is not tap on my brake and slidely fall in behind them. No, I'd love to do other things and communicate other things because I've got this frustration in me. And it, it's immediately made that relationship pretty messy in that moment. I've experienced frustrated desires in friendships and, and parenting. Uh, I've experienced frustrated desires within my marriage. My wife could tell you. She's experienced them too. And so what happens when we experience this that's within us? We have this, this battle, this war. It's war imagery that takes place in this passage in James. And without a resolution to these frustrated desires that take place within us, it's no wonder we've got messy relationships. We've got friendships that are failing. We've got uh, grudges that are held for years where people just continue to stay mad at somebody. We've got within us this, this pride that swells up and we look at someone and we say, it's not possible for you to change the way you are because I'm frustrated because of something you did years ago. There's no way you could be a different person by now. And we, we fail to forgive. We fail to repent. We fail to move forward and mature in our relationships because of frustrated desires. This was a lot of the problem for the church in Corinth. You see, when Paul wrote this letter, they had some frustrated desires. They were tempted by these desires, and they were giving in to these desires. And so Paul sits down, and he begins to address them with this letter, and he wants to focus on some character traits that they're supposed to be allowing the Holy Spirit that's within them to develop in them, and they're not because they're giving in to these desires instead of the work of the Spirit in their life. Now, if you're new to church... Our Bible teaches that our God is three in one. He's God the Father, He's God the Son, and He's God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father sent His Son to live the life that you couldn't live for yourself. And Jesus came and He lived a a perfect life, a sinless life. He died the death that your sin uh, made you deserve dying. But instead, He stood in the way of that. He absorbed that death and He resurrected from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And He made a promise before He did that He would send the Helper. And those of us who are uh, baptized believers in Jesus Christ have received a gift called the Holy Spirit that lives within us. And this Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, wants to develop fruit in our life. The Bible uses that imagery of fruit. It's these character traits that the Spirit continues to develop in us as we grow and mature. You see, there's no Christian in the world that says that they're mature enough. 
because the Spirit continually matures us. He continually points out flaws. He points out things that we need to work on and develop in our life. And Paul in Galatians chapter 5 lays out these fruits of the Spirit, and he also alludes to them pretty specifically here in 1 Corinthians 13, that when it comes to our relationships, the relationships that flourish are the ones that allow the Spirit to develop that fruit. The ones that don't give in to these frustrated desires, and it blocks the development of that fruit in our life. And so Paul begins to lay this out for them. He says, you've got a lot of talent. Remember, Corinth had the most uh, ultra-ambitious, ultra-driven, ultra-successful people within their church. And Paul stops and says, you have a lot of good going for you, but you're neglecting to allow the fruit to develop in your life. And instead, you're giving in to these frustrated desires. And man, it's messing with your relationships. You've got rich people abusing poor people. You've got people that have been believers trying to manipulate the people that are not yet believers. You've got uh, family dynamics that were really, really gross and, and really... Uh, intense and really uh, damaged um, inside this church, and it's all because these people have these frustrated desires. And instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to work through that in them, they gave into it, like many of us do. And so Paul sits down and he begins to pen this letter. And he begins to tell them, Here's what love is not. Well, love is not lacking in certain things. And he says, here's what love is. And so we begin this series. We started looking at it. What are the things that the Spirit should develop in us that our relationships might not be so messy? What should I focus on so that I'm not giving in to these frustrated desires that well up in me on a daily basis, if I'm being honest? And he says, well, you should be patient. Love is patient and kind. And then we talked about how love doesn't envy or boast. It's it's content. And, and today we talk about this buzzword, this key word where Paul says, love is not rude in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Now, I don't know about you, but I've experienced a lot of rudeness in my life. I've experienced it and I've dished it out. <laughs> if we're being honest, this is a battle. In a culture that we live in that looks so similar to Corinth where you're ultra-motivated, ultra-driven, ultra-successful, and the world says, go, 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 it's easy to mistreat people. It's easy to be rude. Many of us have experienced rudeness in our lives. I read this week about a girl who experienced it in her own family. She went to her mom. She said, Mom, why is the moon white? The mother looked at her in a moment of frustration, I guess, not wanting to answer. She said, go ask your father. And the girl replied, oh, I don't want to know that much about it. (laughs) As a dad that probably meets that description, I found that pretty rude, all right? I think my kids would respond the same way. Like, go ask your dad. Oh, Mom, I'm not up for that. I don't got that kind of time. Uh, this season of life brings about a pretty fun, this is one of my favorite seasons of the year because March Madness. Uh, I love March Madness. All right. Now, if you're an IU fan, I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Uh, but <laughs> uh, the rest of us that still have a team in the fight, we're watching and we're excited and, and we come. And one of the things I've noticed, though, is this continual uh, battle that's taking place between this certain family and a, and a, a sports commentator. Uh, this, this one family, uh, the dad has these three sons that are incredibly talented basketball players, and they go to uni- the, uh, UCLA out in California. And what, some of them are in high school. One's at UCLA. And he's been interviewed multiple times, and in his interviews, he's been very brash and very prideful, arrogant, claiming he could beat Michael Jordan one-on-one. And that, got, that well, that's a different sermon. But anyway, <laughs> he just continues to make, st- make these claims. Well, Immediately, a prideful person comes in, and inside one of these commentators, it created this frustrated desire within him, and he lashes out on national TV. And then when this person lashes out, this famous athlete lashes out at this dad, 
and is embarrassing him on national TV. The dad comes back, and, it, and I'm sitting back here, and I'm watching. This is what we're showing our children. You're never to be one-upped. You're never to be made fun of. You're, you always have to win. You always have to come back. And so the person who is the rudest, the person who makes fun of the other person with the most clever remark is the one who wins. And we're teaching future generations that it's all about not being one-upped. That I have to come back and be wittier, and I have to come back and be right. And I'm not concerned with the other person. I'm concerned with image control. And when all we're thinking about is ourselves, it's so easy to become very rude. And Paul wants us to understand that love, real love, the love that is transformed love, it's, it's a byproduct of what the Holy Spirit's done in your life as God has changed your life, has no room for rudeness. There's no room in there for rudeness. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, what does that look like? And I think the best picture, friends, in any church that you would ever attend, the best way for you to learn how to be a Christian, to live the Christian life, is to look at the life of Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 7, we have this incredible encounter that Jesus has with this Pharisee, where frustrated desires well up inside this home. And Jesus responds in such a way that it communicates to us, this is what real love looks like. In the face of being mistreated, in the face of being maybe tempted, the Bible says Jesus never sinned. It doesn't say he was never tempted. So maybe being tempted to respond to that mistreatment, Jesus chooses a different path and allows that fruit to bear in this home. And so Luke chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 36. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Now, we're not sure the motivation. It doesn't come out and say for this specific reason. It could be because Jesus had just gotten done teaching this incredible sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He had healed people. He had, he had met the needs of so many people in the community. He had actually even raised somebody from the dead. And so Jesus had done all of these incredible things. It's no wonder there'd be a buzz about him in the community. And so this Pharisee, Maybe he heard all about Jesus and was intrigued and wanted to invite him into his home so that he could learn more and, and, and learn from maybe this rabbi. I don't think that's likely the case here. I think more than likely the rest of the text gives us a little bit of an idea. Uh, and the way that Luke in his entire gospel would talk about the Pharisees, it wasn't in a positive light. They weren't out to support and cheer for Jesus. Don't know if you've picked up on that as you've read through the gospels. I think his motivation was impure. We see that, by the way, he treats Jesus when he welcomes him into his home. I think he was out to trick him. He was out to prove him wrong. He was out to give in to his frustrated desire to say, well, God can't work like that because I'm a Pharisee. God has to work like this, and so I'm going to bring him into my home, and I'm going to prove that to him. And so he invites him into his home, and so it says that Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, a woman in the town who had lived a sinful life, more than likely a prostitute, had learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now this perfume, the, the Bible tells us, was extremely expensive and would have cost more than a year's wages. And in that day, that's a big deal. And so this, she brings in this perfume uh, into the home. Verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And so Jesus is sitting at the table. He's reclining. He would have been sitting down his feet behind him. And uh, in, typically at a meal like this, in a home like this, you would have the people that were the invited guests around the table, and other people could come in and stand around the room and listen in on the conversation, not participating, but listening in. And so this woman wasn't stopped from entering the home. She comes into the home. She's standing behind Jesus. And I've asked myself, why do you think she was weeping? Why did she start crying? And I've got to wonder if it was she saw that Jesus had been mistreated when he came into the home, and we'll learn about that here in a moment. She listened to the compassion in his voice during a conversation. 
She thought maybe hearing Jesus talk to Simon and the other people in the home that, that maybe there's hope for me too. She's there. She had, she had heard him teaching in the community. She had seen what he had done, and there's hope inside of her. And so she comes to this home with expectation and hope that maybe I'll get to be around him. And there she is, and she begins to put the perfume on his feet, and she's weeping, and she's crying uncontrollably, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. This is a woman of uh, complete and total surrender in this moment. Contrast that in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, this woman in in a complete state of humility and surrender, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he really were a prophet, this gives us the indication he was questioning that, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman that she was, that she is a sinner. Now, immediately Simon's put off by this woman. Immediately he's not considering the needs of anyone else in the room except his own need to understand a little bit more about Jesus and why Jesus would allow this woman to come and approach him this way. Because if he were a rabbi in that day, he wouldn't have allowed that to happen. And so he, he's not going to display compassion to her. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Somebody who's religious, and maybe this is your background, and you come in and you've experienced rudeness from people that claim to be religious. People that claim... I, I sat with a couple this week at a Starbucks talking to them. Uh, they're getting ready to get married. They're, they don't attend our church, and they, they reached out to me, and I'm sitting at the Starbucks talking to them, and I picked up uh, continually as they referenced the church. It wasn't referencing Jesus or a relationship with them. It was referencing religion, and there was some damage that had been done by people like Simon. In the midst of their sin and their shame and even their humility and willingness to surrender, they were rejected because they, people couldn't look past their past and into their future that God had offered them through his compassion. And so Jesus at this moment, is in my mind, completely justified to lash out. He's been mistreated. He's been put on the spot. He's been treated so rudely. And now he's been called out, and he wants to respond. He, he may be tempted to respond, but in, in, in a complete picture of grace and, and manners in responding to rudeness, here's what Jesus says in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. You, you might even translate that more as a question. Simon, can I tell you something? So in the, in the midst of being mistreated, Jesus continues to be so polite, he even asks for permission to continue to teach him. What happens if Simon says, no, I don't want to hear it? Maybe Jesus says, okay, I'm out. And he leaves. He says, hey, can I, can I tell you something, Simon? Despite you being rude, despite you being selfish, despite you being self-centered, despite you putting me on the spot, despite me having to experience this right here in this home that I was welcomed into, can I, can I just tell you something real quick? And then he asks him a question. Verse 41, he says, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? So he asks him a question. He doesn't even make an accusation. Me? I forget the question. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you a story. I'm not going... In that moment, if it's me and my frustrated desire that would have welled up inside of me, can I tell you something? You know what? I'm not even going to ask you if I can tell you something. Let me tell you something. And I would have just ju- jumped right in. And it wouldn't have been, let me think about how you need to hear this. It would have been, you need to hear this. So you think about what you're about to hear. And I would have jumped right in. Not Jesus. He tells a story and he draws him in. You see, at this point, I like to think that Simon's putty in Jesus' hand because he was polite, because he observed the customs of the day. He paid attention to his surroundings, and he started to engage this person who was mistreating him. 
verse 43, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, he's putty. He's in. It's over now, buddy. <laughs> and Jesus says, you've judged correctly. At this point, he's got Simon's full attention. And it's like the mic dropped. Everybody in the room's paying complete and total attention now. He's like, whoa, that was pretty profound. And then he begins to bring it home. He says this. Then he turned toward the woman, and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? See, I came into your house, and you didn't give me the water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me the customary kiss, but this woman, from the time she has entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as great as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus brings it home because in that day there were three customary things that you would do if you welcomed somebody into your home. This is why we probably have a situation where Simon was trying to set Jesus up. Because if he wasn't, he would have paid attention to these very customary things. When you invited somebody to your home, uh, the roads in that day, they were dusty and dirty and people wore sandals. So when they came into your home, one of the first things you'd do as an act of service to them is you would have a bowl of cool water and you would pour it on their feet. It would wash the dust from their feet and soothe and comfort their hurting, sore feet from the journey to your home. In addition to that, you'd place your hand on their shoulder and you would greet them with a kiss on their cheek. This was a sign of respect that was never omitted never omitted when you invited a distinguished rabbi into your home. Third, they would burn a pinch of incense or they would take some perfume from roses and they would put it on the person's forehead just as a refreshing, soothing smell in the atmosphere. Simon did none of these. He said, get in here, Jesus. Let's get to the point. He paid him no attention, was rude from the get-go. And this woman, in her desire to honor Jesus, made up for Simon's lack of paying attention to the customs of the day. And so in verse 48, Jesus turns to her and he says, your sins, they're forgiven. The other guests among themselves, along with Simon, they begin to say, who's this who even forgives sins? And Jesus again comes in and says to her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. A couple observations about this idea of being rude and how it plays into our relationships that we learn from this passage. The first one is this, being rude can destroy your opportunity for mission. See, when we're rude in our relationships, it, it completely destroys any opportunity, any, any chance that we have at living missionally. You see, Jesus knew that. And so coming into this home, Jesus wasn't thinking about just this small encounter with Simon. He was seeing the bigger picture of God's mission. And so instead of allowing that frustrated desire to well up within him, Jesus was being polite and kind to this person. And in doing so, he communicated to everybody in the room something much bigger. That when we're rude... It will take away from our opportunity to be missional, but when we can overcome that desire to be rude to somebody. And you know what I mean by being rude. It's that, it's that I think I'm right and I know you're wrong, and so I'm going to display it in my body language, my tone of voice. I'm going to display it in certain ways that I treat you. I'm going to start rumors about you. I'm going to make sure everyone else knows that you're wrong and that I'm right. I'm going to make sure that you feel, not just that you understand, but that you feel wrong and that I'm right in this moment. You elevate oneself over the other person. That is rude. And when we're rude, we completely kill our opportunity to be missional. And here's the thing. The Bible doesn't only tell us to be missional towards outsiders, though it is very specific. We're to care for and love those within the family of God as well. And so when we live out our mission, we encourage and lift up believers and we reach out to and participate in bringing sinners uh, to faith. And so uh, Jesus does this. He displays to everybody in the room how to deal with conflict. 
there wasn't a person in that room. Picture being a fly on that wall. You walk out of the room, you're like, whoa, I've been getting this whole conflict thing wrong because the way Jesus just conducted himself, he got the results I've always wanted when I lash out. Like when I mistreat people, I want the same results that he actually got that I never seem to get when I'm rude to people. So he, he teaches people how to deal with conflict in this moment. He teaches them how to deal with somebody who's mistreated you and, and hasn't shown you the basic parts of hospitality and how to serve two people that needed him. You realize as much as the woman needed to be forgiven, Simon did too. And Jesus kept that in his mind. He wasn't just there to serve this woman in this moment. He was keeping the needs of Simon fully engaged the whole time as well. So he wasn't narrow-minded on one situation. He saw the bigger picture. And here's what I've learned. When we're rude, we're attempting to hurt people. And, and when we're polite, we're attempting to serve people. So here's one way to say that. Shock effect closes ears, but surprise opens hearts. You see, when we're rude, we're trying to shock somebody. We're trying to get them to, to like shake their reality a little bit. And, and we respond to them with a, with a word or a tone of voice or, or a phrase or, or the way we treat them or our body language. or we, we, we rude. Some of us are rude just completely on purpose. And we're trying to shock them so that they get some... And we never seem to get the results that we want, if you're like me. But when we surprise people, man, that opens up their heart. You see, when you're rude, you're shocking them. But when you're polite and you're serving and you're kind, that surprises people. And that opens them up to being willing to hear the story of grace, which is our second point here. We have to earn the right to be heard with our message of hope. You have to earn that. It's not just given to you. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that everybody has to listen to you. I don't know if you figured that out. I met with someone else this week who looked right at me and said, I don't see that I I have a need for God. It doesn't fit. I'm a good person. I do the right thing. I serve my community. There's no need for God. And in that moment, I could have jumped in and said, well, let's talk about what good is. Let me apologetically destroy your illogical argument. And I could, like, we could have got into that, and I could have tried to shock him with it, but instead I said, hey, would you be willing to continue to meet? I'll buy the coffee. See, that's surprising, because he wasn't expecting something like that from a minister. And so shock effect would have closed him off. Surprise opened him up. Friends, there's often times where we're rude and mean in an effort to be right. And even when our motivations are pure, we can still be rude. Like, I know I'm right, and I just want you to understand that I'm right. But for Jesus, it was more important for that person to hear and understand the message of grace, and he had to earn that. Colossians 4 tells us this, Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, not rudeness. Seasoned with salt so that you may, be answer, you may know how to answer everyone. I love the way that Eric Hoffer says this. He said, rudeness is often the weak man's imitation of strength. When we're rude to people, we're trying to display something we don't really have. Think about this story. Who is the one person in the room who had all the strength? I didn't hear Simon saying your sins are forgiven. I didn't hear anybody else in the room with that authority or power. See, the one in the room who had the most power is the one who displayed the most humility. Simon was rude in an effort to display strength, only to prove that in the end he was completely weak. See, when we're rude to one another in our marriages, when we're rude to one another with our kids and our parenting, and we're rude to our neighbors or our coworkers or our friends, and we start rumors or we display, we're trying to display something we don't really have. True strength comes from humility and serving other people. And this is why Paul says there's no room for love. So I want to give you three ways that you can apply this to your life, three specific ways. The first is this, know your context. 
See, combating the frustrating desire to be rude within us requires that we pay attention to our surroundings. Jesus knew the room that he was in. He understood. I'm sure he scanned the entire room, paid attention to everybody in the room before he engaged. Uh, James, the one I'm studying with the students on Sunday night, says everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Think about your words, Colossians 4. Let, Let your conversations be seasoned with salt. Pay attention to where you are. You have to earn that right. Pay attention to your context. I remember when I was in India, uh, I went to India for two weeks, uh, and Jed, our former student minister, was with me, and his mom was with us, and a lot of other people. And we would go to these uh, villages uh, at all the churches that uh, were being planted, and we would visit these churches. And when you go to India and you're visiting uh, these churches, they, they're very poor, but they want to serve you. And so the way that these, all of these villages, I'm talking two straight days of visiting villages, the one way they wanted to serve us was they would get a coconut. And they would take a machete and they would slice into that coconut and they'd shove a straw into it and they would serve you this coconut juice. I don't know what your experience is with coconut juice, but warm coconut juice is not the most refreshing drink on a hot day in India. And so we would sit in these villages and you'd drink it. The problem was no one else in our group seemed to want to drink theirs. But the context says you have to. These people work hard. These people don't have much, and when they offer you something, you pay attention. And so what everybody would do is whenever they had the opportunity, uh, they saw that I drank mine, they would switch coconuts with me. And so throughout two days, I drank more coconut juice and had more stomach problems (laughs) than I've ever had in my entire life because the context said you have to. You have to pay attention to your surroundings. Instead of only focusing on knowing what needs to be said, friends, think about this. Think about how it needs to be received. You see, within his context, Jesus wasn't just focusing on the truth that needed to be communicated, but how that truth might be received. And boy, what a difference this would make in our marriages and in our homes, with our friendships and our workplaces. This would transform workplaces if we didn't think just about what needed to be said, but how that might be received. Jesus paid attention to this. This past week, my workflow goes like this. On Mondays and Tuesdays, we try to have most of our meetings here at the church. At least I do. And then on Monday and Tuesday afternoons, I'm reading and studying, and on Wednesdays, I disappear, and I write my sermon. And so this past Wednesday, I spent, I, I find a hideout in, uh, somewhere in Indianapolis, and I sit and I write all day. And so I, I got done writing the sermon, and I got home, and I was writing a sermon on uh, being, not being rude, but having manners and being polite and paying attention to your context. And I get home, and I'm sitting at the dinner table. My two oldest kids are eating their spaghetti by taking handfuls and shoving it into their face. And I'm I, in a moment of frustrated desire, I just, are you kidding me? You're not, that's not honoring God. Why are you eating like that? You don't eat with your hands. You're not supposed to do that. And I get done with my little rant. I said, that is just not polite. That is not rude. Or that is rude. That is not polite. And then we clean up dinner and my wife says, hey, you think it's rude how you communicate it too? Boom. <laughs> like, ugh. So I go into their room, and I have to apologize again, uh, and I sit by their bed, and I say, man, daddy was wrong. Eat your spaghetti with your I'm kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, daddy was wrong. That's not how we communicate. That's not how we love people. Pay attention to your surroundings. Second thing is this. Pay attention to details. Combating rudeness requires being intentional. Remember, a couple years ago, we were on a mission trip, and we had all these high school kids, and uh, Seth Jones had to pull all the guys aside at one moment. Seth is a member of our church here at New Hope because uh, he had watched these high school boys walk up to the restaurant that we were going to eat at, and there was a very pregnant woman with two toddlers, 
and the high school boys let her hold the door for them. And Seth said, everybody out. <laughs> everybody out. He pulled them all out of the restaurant. He said, get out. Get in the van. Got in the van and let them understand that that's not what you do in his very polite, calm demeanor. Not, not, not quite. He laid into them and let them know this is so rude. And so, friends, we have to pay attention to the details. This culture needs people being polite, people responding to rudeness the way that Jesus did, and people encountering that the way that Jesus remained calm. The third thing is this. Stay connected to Jesus. Combating rudeness and all other frustrated desires requires staying connected to the source of life, friends. Every week, this will be an application point. There's this image that appears in the Bible. It's found in Psalm chapter 1 and Jeremiah chapter 17. It's this image of a tree being planted by a river. And it doesn't matter what happens around the tree. It always seems to flourish because it's so close to the river. And so the heat comes and the scorching heat comes and the drought comes and all these things come. And yet this tree survives and it lives. And then in your New Testament, Jesus picks up on this same image. And in John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me will produce fruit. You'll produce the fruit that Paul's talking about right here. He says, but if you don't abide in me, if you don't stay connected to me, the vine, the source of life, when heat comes or drought comes or difficulty comes or frustrated desires rise up, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. He says, your one job is to stay connected to Jesus every day trying to learn from him and allowing him to shape and mold you into who he needs you to be in order to do what he needs you to do. Friends, I am sure of it. There are a lot of frustrated desires represented in this room today. Marriages that have experienced a lot of rude conversations. Kids that feel like their parents have been rude. Parents who feel like their kids have been rude. People who feel like their coworkers and their bosses have mistreated them at work. How do we respond to represent Jesus? We respond by being polite, by considering our context by being intentional with the people around us, by allowing our conversations to be seasoned with salt and to ultimately see other people as more important than ourselves. And the only way we do that is if we stay connected to the vine. And so this week, my question for you as you try to live this out is this, how, how are you combating that frustrated desire to be rude in your life? How are you staying connected to the vine? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the loving kindness of Jesus. Thank you that even when he was mistreated, he loved other people. Even when people were rude to him and weren't kind to him, he responded with a love, a deep love and appreciation for them. Father, I'm so grateful for all that you do for us. I pray this week as we walk out of here and apply this passage to our lives, Father, my prayer is that this truth, that you want to use us in this world to be your loving hands and feet and voice in the lives of so many other people, I pray, Father, that would sit heavy on our hearts and as we walk out here, we would seek to stay connected to the vine in an effort to overcome those frustrated desires that well up in our hearts. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.